I want to greet all of you in Jesus' name this morning. I wondered as I prepared this message, uh, if we had a little bit of a time of sharing before the message, I don't plan to, but if you can just imagine what this would go like. Something I appreciate about our culture and us as a people is how much we appreciate meals at home, meals with family and friends, and as a community and as a brotherhood and fellowship meals and how precious those are. But I imagine all of you have been in the situation I've been in where you had an opportunity to eat out and you find yourself at a restaurant or somewhere that you need to pay for a meal. I wondered if we were to survey the congregation here, what would be the most anyone ever spent on a meal? Imagine if we held our hands up to those that spent $10, we'd see a lot of hands. 20 or $30, we'd probably lose a lot of hands. I'm not even quite sure what's the most I've ever had to spend for a meal. I don't think it was $40. It might have been. I had the opportunity this week to participate in the second most expensive meal that I was ever a part of. I was invited to a meal on Tuesday this week that was kind of a highbrow, upper crust, hoity-toity kind of a meal, if you know what I mean. In Washington, D.C., it was movers and shakers. It was the upper 1%. It was uh, the beautiful people that were there. I felt a little bit out of place. The price of that meal for the privilege to sit down in a chair and have a dinner plate put in front of you was $350. The food was good. It included some food from our farm. It wasn't $350 good, but it was a fundraiser. I had some responsibilities there. I wasn't there as an invited guest entirely. But I want to draw an analogy from that meal to what we experience as we come here together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to think about the cost of the meal that we're about to participate in. First Peter 1 reminds the people of God of this fact. You were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. I want to submit to you that you're about to participate in the most costly meal you'll ever participate in, and that you do that every time on the Lord's Day when you celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that is because the elements of the bread and the wine that symbolize the shattered body of Jesus and his poured out blood are without cost. Beyond cost, they're beyond the value of silver and gold. So, you think about those things and wonder, what should our attitude be? How should we approach this meal? Are we doing it in a way that is right and proper and that is pleasing to God? as we prepare to celebrate communion. What is your attitude today? If I asked you to express it in a single word, what would you say? 
Are you enthusiastic, joyful, expectant, hopeful? Are you sober, tense, concerned, unworthy? Or worse, are you dull, disengaged, inattentive, bored? God forbid. What is your attitude as you approach the celebration of the Lord's Supper and this most costly of meals? Philippians 2.5, Paul commands us that we need to let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So I find myself wondering, what was Jesus' attitude? If he would express in one word his attitude when he approached that Last Supper, and should ours be the same? It was about 1985 years ago that Christ seated himself in a rented guest chamber He officiated over the final, greatest, the ultimate Passover meal. It had been about 1,500 years, that's 15 centuries, that the people of God had been celebrating the Passover meal, actually rehearsing it. They had never truly celebrated it because the purpose of the Passover meal was never realized until Christ officiated over that meal at the Last Supper with his disciples. Fifteen centuries of practicing the Passover, 1,500 years, the people of God faithfully and obediently celebrated the Passover, ate the Passover lamb that was sacrificed to prepare them to recognize when their true Passover, the Lord Jesus, came to die for their sins. Well, we don't have to guess at Jesus' attitude. I might have to guess at your own. Maybe I think I could look at your faces and recognize your attitude as you're here to celebrate communion. But I don't need to guess at Jesus' attitude. When he instituted the Lord's Supper, when he inaugurated communion, when he ordered the service that we're about to participate in, he expressed his feelings, his attitude, his spirit in a single word. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I'm going to start in the second half of verse 13. Just read a couple verses here. Luke 22, the end of verse 13, they made ready the Passover, and when the hour was come, he, Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Well, I don't know if you missed it, there it is. That's a single word, that was Christ's attitude as he came to the Last Supper, with desire, I've desired. The word epithumia there means overburning. It means burning above. And it's used twice here. It's actually 
the only place in Scripture that the word appears back to back. It's an intense, powerful word, and it's used twice here, and somehow that intensifies the intensity and multiplies the power of the phrase, the term, epithumia, epi, over, and thumia, burning. In my own translation, Jesus could have said this, expressing his feelings as he came to sit at the Last Supper with his followers. I have breathlessly yearned with a consuming, overwhelming desire to eat this final, ultimate Passover meal with you before I suffer. So I have to wonder as I think about Christ's attitude in that first of last suppers. Am I here breathlessly? Am I here yearning? Do you come with a consuming, burning, overwhelming desire to celebrate this meal? I mentioned that we are at the most costly of meals. It's kind of, if someone from the world, someone that didn't understand the faith, uh, didn't fear God, came in here and saw what we pronounce to be the most precious and most costly of meals, they might snicker a little. They'd probably be too polite to laugh out loud, but it is kind of a pathetic meal. It's not even good fluffy bread. It's unleavened bread. It's flat. It's dry. Not to take anything away from how much we appreciate the bread, but it's not the best of breads. It's poor man's bread. It's make it quick bread. And the wine, well, it's not even wine. It's juice. What kind of a feast is this? We're supposed to be a royal priesthood. Can we expect something more special? I titled the sermon, Do This in Remembrance of Me. I want to talk about our responsibility. I already hinted at what our attitude should be as we come to communion and how important it is that we realize how important it is to Christ, how his people come. But also not just how they come, but what they do, what's expected. When I was at this fundraising meal, I had a responsibility. I was not there as a honored guest. I was there as a servant. I'd been given a role to play. I was given a commandment. I had a job to do that meal. It was kind of a pathetic job. I was there to cut up and serve cheese. I'd like to submit that the people of God have a role to play, have a job to do as you approach the Lord's table and celebrate the Lord's Supper together. You need to come with a right attitude You need to come understanding you have a role to play and understanding you have a job to do as you celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is kind of a fascinating passage. We are familiar with the first half of 1 Corinthians 11 where what we understand to be the ordinance of the woman's head covering is explained. The second half of this chapter 
Starting in verse 17, someone is referred to, the rest of this chapter, as two halves of a filthy Corinthian barnyard with a precious diamond buried in the middle. After the exposition of the ordinance of the woman's head covering, Starting in verse 17 and going on to verse 22, we find ourselves slogging through this Corinthian barnyard. Any of you that aren't farmers, I imagine you can, with the eyes of your imagination, picture what it's like to slog through a barnyard. In verse 17 through 22, we slog through terms like coming together for the worse, divisions, heresy, drunkenness, gluttony, We're through the first side of the barnyard. Drop down to verse 27 and through the end of the chapter. If it's possible, the barnyard's worse on this side. Terms like unworthiness, guilty of the body and blood of Christ, eating and drinking damnation in the Lord's Supper, not discerning the Lord's body, judgment of weakness, judgment of sickness, judgment of death, Judgment of chastening, judgment of condemnation. I want to pay attention to the diamond in this Corinthian barnyard where Paul has rebuked the church at Corinth for coming to the Lord's table unacceptably. And we should spend time on that. We could be instructed and warned by that, but that isn't the purpose of this sermon. I want to pay attention to the diamond in this Corinthian barnyard. Before I do that, I want to know if you've ever come back from a communion service and been asked by someone who wasn't there, how was communion? Are you like me? Do you find that a little bit of a hard question to answer? What are you supposed to say? It was good. I, I don't know what, I, it was a good communion. Well, what is a good communion? Nobody makes a scene. We get through it. We don't run out of wine. No. What is a good communion? We can take it for granted, the teaching that we have here about the Lord's Supper, but over half of the souls on this planet that name the, name the name of Christ in the Catholic Church. 1.2 billion souls, 1,200 million souls accept the lie that in the process of this Lord's Supper, when the priest expresses the term, the words of Jesus, this is my body, that the elements of communion are transformed supernaturally from everyday bread into the literal, physical, actual body of Christ. And the wine is transformed from everyday wine into the literal, actual, physical blood of Christ. Now, that would be just a misunderstanding, except uh, an unfortunate, tragic misunderstanding. But The problem with that is it changes what we understand to be a good communion. Because a good communion, 
for 1,200 million Catholics around the face of this planet is if you manage to choke down that wafer and get that wine into your stomach, that's a good communion because you have received automatically grace from God. If grace, if God didn't want to give you grace, he can't help it because if you can get that wafer down and you can get that wine down, you have the grace of God. Okay, we understand that that's not the situation here. We understand very well that you can come up here and be served the bread and be served the wine and go home with absolutely no grace of God. You can celebrate a graceless communion. So what is a good communion? A good communion is one where you and we together receive the grace of God. And we can't just get it because we swallowed the bread and swallowed the wine. There's more to it. We don't subscribe to transubstantiation. We say that this bread remains bread. It's a symbol. It's an object that helps us remember. The wine, the juice remains wine. It's a symbol. It helps us remember. I am assuming that we are gathered here today in Christ. I think I'm safe saying that. I'm assuming that we are presuming to be a disciplined scriptural brotherhood, that we've examined ourselves, that we're able to discern the body and blood of Christ, that we all have, as we've expressed, that are going to participate in the Lord's Supper. We all have peace with God and with our fellow man. I'm assuming, I've never seen different, that Daniel is going to officiate in an appropriate, orderly way, according to the order established by Christ for this Lord's Supper. Assuming all of that, we have one more thing that's needful to be able to experience a good communion. That is, we have to carry out our role. We're assigned one responsibility and one only when we come to communion. Assuming all these things I've mentioned, we've come together appropriately, worthily, we're in Christ, the ordinance is carried out according to the rule and order of Christ. There is one last thing, and that's the role that we're called to play as God's people. Again, the title of the sermon, do this in remembrance of me. This is our responsibility. This is our measure, our contribution to this communion. I was called on to slice cheese and hand it out to people. We had 60 pounds or more of cheese. We went through most of it. The measure of me doing my job well is, did the people get the cheese? And I can tell you they did. But here we've been assigned a different role. We have a role of doing this, that is consuming the bread, representing the shattered body of Christ, drinking the juice, representing the poured out blood of Christ in a way that drives us to remembrance. Christ says twice, do this in remembrance of me. Let's look at the diamond in the barnyard. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 26. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, 
This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death until he come. Christ asks us one thing. We have one role to play as we're invited to this most costly of suppers. Remember. Remember his sacrifice. Remember the broken body. And remember the poured out blood. Now, we could understand that when Christ said, do this in remembrance of me, we need to remember Bethlehem. And we need to remember the entirety of Christ's life in addition to his suffering and death. But it's clear that what we're to remember is his suffering and death because the symbols that he's ordained to drive us to remember are the symbols of the broken body and the poured out blood. In verse 24 and 25, this word, remember, is not, you've forgotten, so remember. I think I forget a lot more things than I used to. I have trouble with remembering, I, I find, in these next few years. There's a different word for that kind of remembering, where a memory has, has eluded you and escaped you, and it's gone, and you want to bring it back. This word speaks of filling your mind. The word is anamanesis. Anna, we know the word Anna. From Anabaptist, it means again. We know the word another. Our word another comes from this Greek word Anna. Manesis is not speaking of a memory. It's speaking of a full mind. Christ's call to his people in observing the Lord's Supper is to be mindful. Fill your mind. Do this in remembrance of me. Fill your mind again. That's what the command is, literally. Again, fill your mind with the death of Christ. To that end, I want to spend a little bit of time. I want to read a portion of the description in Scripture of Christ's suffering, crucifixion, and death. If we had time, I would like to spend the time looking at Gethsemane. I'd like to look at his betrayal and arrest. I'd like to look at Peter's denial. I'd like to look at Judas's suicide. We are going to run out of time. So I'm going to start after Pilate is finished with Christ. Before I do that, as I was considering this little bit of reading I want to do, I was thinking of the hymn. I'm going to ask Mark, when we're finished, would you lead number 603? The hymn is Tell Me the Old, Old Story. And I wonder what your thoughts are, as I said, that I'm going to read to you something that I imagine most of us have heard hundreds of times. Is it kind of a sigh? Not again. Remember the command. Remember the role we've been given to play in the Lord's Supper. Fill your minds again with the death of Christ. We're going to use the scriptures to do that. And I think we need to banish the idea that this is familiar ground. I haven't forgotten it. 
The issue is not, have you forgotten about Christ's death? Christ would have us fill our minds with it. The hymn goes, tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon the early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the story softly with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always if you would really be in any time of trouble, a comforter to me. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. And when the Lord's bright glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story. Christ Jesus makes me whole. This is the story I have for you today. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead just a little bit in the account. I'm going to use a little bit of an unfamiliar instrument for you. I'll apologize for that, but I think it's helpful. This account is a harmony of the Gospels. It takes the account of Jesus' suffering, crucifixion, and death, and consolidates it into a single narrative. It takes the four threads of the four Gospels and weaves them into a tapestry. I'm not doing this to improve on the Gospels, but to include all of the Gospel accounts in this story. It isn't perfect. It's a work of man. It's an assembly of the accounts and dialogue and events of Christ's passion and death. But it's, I think, helpful. It's from a Holman Christian Standard Bible translation. So some of the words will be a little unfamiliar. You can't follow along in your Bibles because it's going to jump from gospel to gospel, even from verse to verse. And the translation would be distracting. So you can close your swords in your laps. You won't need them for a few minutes. I'm going to omit the section on Jesus before the Jews. It's fascinating to me that Jesus before the Jews and Jesus before the Gentiles is a perfect mirrored image. That is, Jesus faces arraignment, and then he faces interrogation, and then he faces condemnation from the Jews. And when he's turned over to the accursed Gentiles, to the godless Gentiles, it's the same process, a three-step arraignment, interrogation, and condemnation. The Jews desperately desired to be God's people. They were very, very motivated to be the people of God. But they had no time for God's chosen messenger, for God's Messiah. They rejected Jesus' teachings because they would not accept them. Not because they didn't believe he was from God. They would not accept his teachings. I think there's a faith lesson for God's people in that today. I think we see around us, and God forbid we experience it here, more and more comfort with the idea of, I'm uncomfortable with Jesus' teachings, I'm going to set them aside. Jesus says in John 14, in effect, I am the true and living way. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Jews rejected Christ 
We know that cost them the privilege of being God's people. But it can also cost the people of God today. In Luke 10, it says, He that despiseth me, Jesus, despiseth the Father. Set aside Jesus' teachings. Reject Jesus. You are disqualified from being the people of God. John 5, He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father. The Jews would neglect Jesus' teachings and reject him. They lost their relationship with the Father. 1 John 5, whoever denies the Son, the same hath not the Father. You cannot have the Father without the Son. You cannot have the Son and reject his teachings. This was the Jews' fatal mistake. Again in 2 John 1, whoever abideth not in the teaching of Christ hath not God. That's a really important verse. It was important for the Jews and it's important for us today. Whoever abideth not in the doctrine or the teaching of Christ hath not God. Okay, so I'm setting aside Jesus' interaction with the Jews a little bit for the sake of time. I'm also going to set aside Jesus' interaction with the Gentiles. After being rejected by the so-called people of God, he went on and was confronted by Pilate. When Pilate was finished with him, Pilate found out, oh, this man's a Galilean. Well, I happen to know the governor, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and he sent Jesus off to Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was glad to meet Jesus, kind of toyed with him, begged him for a miracle, and when he didn't get it, shipped him back off to Pilate. Pilate gave Jesus a last opportunity to be released. Pilate ten times tried to avoid Jesus' blood guilt. He tried to set Jesus free. He tried desperately. Jesus could have done very little and been freed. The people, he appealed to the Jews. A total of ten times. Trying to dismiss the blood guilt that he knew would be his as he rejected and condemned Jesus. He put this pathetic fig leaf on at the end of this interaction. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. And then he proceeded to have him crucified. Do you hear the bankruptcy of that statement? I am innocent of this man's blood. Take him away. Crucify him. The Jews answered Pilate and said, His blood be on us and our children. So Pilate washes his hands of this man's blood. The Jews say, fine, no problem. His blood be on our hands and on our children. Well, they have no more right to accept the guilt for Jesus' blood than Pilate has the right to wash his hands of it. 2,000 years of anti-Semitism, branding the Jews as the Christ killers, come from misunderstanding this statement. The guilt for Jesus' death the blood guilt for his blood did not rest on the Jews just because they sought it. And Pilate was not clear because he said he was innocent. The reality is that all Christ rejectors will be damned by the very blood that could have redeemed them. Pilate and the Gentiles were guilty of Jesus' blood. The Jews were, and any of us, who leave this life and go into eternity 
having rejected Christ, will be damned by the very blood that was shed to save us. Just as an aside, rejecting Christ is not something that needs to be stated. You can reject Christ by ignoring his offer to come unto me. When you fail to answer his call to come unto him, you have rejected Christ. So let's understand, we don't have to stand up and make a solemn affirmation, I reject Christ. Not accepting is rejecting. Okay, so I'd like to look at this passage. I'd like to start with the place where Pilate has turned Jesus over to the Roman soldiers. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted a crown out of thorns and put it on his head and placed a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spit at him. They took the reed from him and hit him on the head with it. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe, put his clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A great multitude of the people followed him, including women who mourned and lamented him. Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren. Blessed are the wombs that never bore. Blessed are the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? When they arrived at the place called the skull, Golgotha, they crucified him there. They gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Pilate also had a sign lettered and put on the cross. Above his head, they put the charge against him in writing. The inscription was, Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews. Write that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them in four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but gamble for it and see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scripture that says they divided my clothes among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. And this is what the soldiers did. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The next part of the account that I'd like to read is Jesus dying on the cross. Before I do that, I want to just mention to you the familiar passage where the governor's soldiers are blaspheming the king of kings. 
And how do they choose to blaspheme him? By setting him up as a puppet king, as a fake king. They blaspheme him by mocking him as a king in name only. Shame on them for that, right? Mocking Jesus as a king in name only. May we never similarly pretend to name Jesus as king. And yet in a lack of love for him and a lack of obedience to him, blaspheme his kingship. If we do not walk in love and obedience to Christ, we are in effect blaspheming his kingship the same as the governor's soldiers. want to move on to the account of Jesus on the cross. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing and yelling insults at him. They shook their heads. They said, ha, are you the one that would demolish the sanctuary and build it in three days? Save yourself by coming down from the cross. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine in the same way the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we will believe in him. He has put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am God's son. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. So the scripture was fulfilled, it says, and he was counted among the outlaws. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him, taunting him. Aren't you the Messiah? Why don't you save yourself and us? But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment. We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. I said that there had been 1,500 Passovers. 1,500 times God's people killed a Passover lamb that was meant to teach them to expect atonement to be done by a substitute, vicarious atonement, a vicar, a substitute, the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the worthy for the unworthy, a spotless lamb for filthy dogs, the righteous for the unrighteous, the son of God for the enemies of God. I think it's fascinating to read the account of Jesus' suffering and crucifixion and death and see all of the prophecy, the unwilling prophets. I can't help but think that the Spirit of God was so present and so thick in this situation that there were unwilling prophets everywhere saying true things in spite of themselves. They couldn't help themselves. They said he saved others himself he cannot save. That was true. He was capable of saving himself coming down from the cross, but he was incapable of saving himself 
and others. The account of Jesus' death. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah, but the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. After this, Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He said, I'm thirsty. A vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. They fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Then bowing his head, he yielded up that spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked, the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of saints who had gone to their rest were raised. They came out of the tombs after his resurrection and entered the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and saw these things that had happened, they were terrified. And they said, truly, this man was God's son. This man was truly righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross for the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested Pilate have the men's legs broken, that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came, breaking the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs, since they saw he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you also may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that scripture may be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. The other scripture that says they will look at the one that they have pierced. I said that the spirit of prophecy was thick around the cross at Golgotha on that day, and I believe it was. Again, in Matthew 27, verse 54, that prophetic spirit was so powerful that a centurion and 100 hardened, murderous soldiers, their hands still sticky with our Lord's blood, confessed, truly, this was the Son of God. Can you imagine the torture in their minds as they realized they had just unspeakably tortured and inhumanly killed the Son of God. Can you imagine the fear that would strike into your heart? You can't undo that. It's done. Pilate wanted to wash Christ's blood from their hands. They could wash the stickiness from their hands, but the blood guilt for Christ's blood remained. As you consider the fearfulness of this, I'm going to ask you, if 
you do not consider yourself today a child of God, the torture that it will be on the last day. On the last day when billions and billions will echo this damning confession. Truly, this was the Son of God. On the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Truly, this was the Son of God. I have the guilt of his blood on my hands. Unlike Pilate, we have the opportunity to wash that blood guilt from our hands. We have the opportunity to be washed by the very blood that will contaminate the damned. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God, has made him Christ. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I want to close here with just a brief comment about the physical process of crucifixion. As you may know, death and crucifixion happens by suffocation. You are actually killed by the upward and outward tension on your arms collapsing your lungs. It's your own body weight that kills you. Jesus went to the cross practically dead already. His emaciated form weighed very little, and yet he died before the strong, healthy criminals. I want to submit to you that he was killed by more than his own body weight. When Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate and begged the Lord's body, Pilate couldn't believe he was already dead. It says he marveled that he was already dead. I'd like to submit to you that there was far more than Jesus' emaciated body weight that killed him. The weight of being forsaken by his father, the weight of the sins of the entire world. I said that the Spirit of God was, in my opinion, very real and very visibly manifested around this scene. But I think that when the Father forsook the Son, when the Father turned his head away, the Spirit departed as well, and Christ was left utterly alone, rejected and condemned by the Jews, rejected and condemned by the Gentiles. There was no one left. His followers had left. I believe he was more alone than anyone has ever been, and I believe that he died from the weight not only of his own body, collapsing his lungs, but from the weight of the forsakenness, the desolation of being forsaken by his father and by taking on the sins, and not only the sins of those that would be the people of God, but the sins of the whole world. So if you're asked after this service today, was it a good communion, I want you to think about how well did you again fill your mind with the suffering and death of Jesus? We want to be mindful again the price that Christ paid to admit us to this supper. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. Let's kneel for prayer.